Hi, I'm Mark Anelsky, your host of the Economics of Wellbeing podcast. I'm a well-being economist and author of the award-winning book, The Economics of Happiness, and my new book, An Economy of Wellbeing, Common Sense Tools for Building Genuine Wealth and Happiness. I believe the most important aspiration in life is well-being and genuine happiness. But by happiness, I mean the original Greek definition, which literally means well-being of your spirit or well-being of your soul. Did you know that the word wealth is a 13th century Old English word that literally means the conditions of well-being? In this series of podcasts, I will explore a wide range of subjects related to building a better world based on flourishing well-being and the pursuit of genuine happiness. I'm joined by special guests to talk about the development of a new economy based on well-being. What if improving well-being for all became the ultimate purpose of business and the economy? In these podcasts, you will learn how to incorporate the principles of well-being into your personal and family life, your business, and your community. I hope you enjoy this podcast. My next guest on the Economy of Well-Being podcast is Dr. Clinton Bliss. Clinton Bliss, MD, is a medical director of the Bliss Medical Center. He's based in Seattle, Washington. He's a graduate of UCLA's School of Medicine and practices family and emergency medicine in Washington State. He's also the president of the Board of Directors of the Happiness Alliance, a nonprofit organization that focuses on improving the quality of life of individuals and communities around the world through education and community engagement. He lives in Seattle with his partner, Laura Muzikansky, who is a previous guest on my show talking about measuring happiness and well-being in Seattle and her work internationally. Clinton Bliss recently co-authored an article called When Will the Pandemic End? Suggestions for U.S. Communities to Manage Well-Being in the Face of COVID-19. We have a lively conversation about his perceptions and experience as a medical doctor in the emergency ward and now with the pandemic uh, long-lasting and with us probably for months to come. Clinton and I discuss what next, what's possible uh, in a pandemic economy, and what are some of the opportunities that we may explore going further, going further in terms of an economy of well-being. Welcome, uh, Dr. Clinton Bliss. I love your surname, Bliss. I, I'm mm-hmm. going to keep stumbling on the <laughs> the aspiration of your surname, but <laughs> but thanks for joining uh, me on on the show today and the uh, economics of well being. Tell uh, tell us what you're what you're currently passionate about it and the article you've written. So, yes. Well, I'm a family doctor by training. Uh, I went to UCLA for medical school. Came up to the University of Washington in Seattle and did my uh, family practice residency there and have worked subsequently in emergency medicine and hospital medicine as well as family practice. Uh, I actually began writing the article, uh, When Will the Pandemic End, uh, for my son. Um, He's 18, he has uh, type one diabetes, which puts him at increased risk for complications of almost anything he would get, including uh, the Mm COVID-19. And 
So he got into Juilliard. Very fortunate that he got. Wow, Juilliard. Yes. Impressive. Uh, thinking about whether he would go or not. Because <laughs> he was worried about the risks. And so I tried to put together some objective data that would help him understand that. And also because it seemed like it was not necessarily freely available out there, uh, I, I felt like it was something that would be worth giving to others as well. So that's kind of mm. how it was about. Wow. So wh where, where is your um, article published? It's in the International Journey, Journal of Community Wellbeing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is by Springer, but it's uh, my first and only article. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the world of academic journals or quasi-academic. Wow. Fascinating. So in terms of, um, you know, we've been talking about how people are experiencing this uh, this pandemic and uh, call it a also, and we're in a pandemic economy too. And um, what are you seeing in your, in your patients? And uh, uh, I mean, you're in the Seattle area, so there's all kinds of interesting things going on in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, what are you uh, observing? I guess in terms of my patients, I, I would say, Mostly things are similar to what they've been. The interactions are similar. It is difficult wearing masks. Um, I can't read people's faces in the same way. Um, and I imagine it's true for them as well. Mm. Uh, that human interaction, that personal communication, much of it is through our uh, faces. Um, so I would say I miss that part of things. Um, and, you know, depending on the situation, uh, there's also a little less touch, I would say. Certainly when I go in to see a patient in the emergency room who's, um, I don my pepper and all, <laughs> and it is much more distant. Uh, there's, but that most patients, um, it's still, we just wear masks. Right, right. And I would people seem in general, my perception is that people are more fearful in their interactions with neighbors. Uh, I think part of it is that people are trying to be respectful. And so they give more distance, but then it's also this kind of like, oh, somebody doesn't want to be around me or, and so I think it, has a chilling effect overall, if I were to say. Mm. And people are a little more angry, unhappy. Yeah. That would be yeah. Well, have you uh, have you sense a sort of, uh, I, I guess, a normalization of, you know, they say I I heard it said when when this all started in March. I think we all remember it was March fifteenth and just got home in time kind of thing. Yeah. Um, do you think people are sort of climatizing to this new normal? Um, and, you know, I guess initially maybe there was all kinds of uncertainty and fear and anxiety, uh, or do you think things are 
things are getting better or are people finding a new normal or what are you seeing? Well, sort of, I think, you know, as human beings, we're so adaptable. It's amazing. Mm. <laughs> um, and even, you know, human beings in a war zone socialize and go out and find food and have babies. And <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, amazing what we can adjust to. Um, but I, I do feel like within that, there is, uh, that chilling effect nonetheless, uh, that there seems to be something lost in the process. So, and I guess I think I wrote about young people partially because of my son, but also because young people were starting to take more risks. And I think they are seeing that they aren't as much at risk themselves. And so they are normalizing a mm. bit. Mm -hmm. It's just that it can fuel the pandemic, which is certainly very concerning. Yes, yes. I think that's, yeah, that's an interesting reflection. I'm seeing that in our, our daughters are 20 and 23 and uh -huh. they're respectful of course, not affecting their grandparents. So, but in a way I observing their, their, they found a very, a new normal, I guess, for themselves. And, uh, and it's not that they're afraid of death or anything. It's just they're, maybe they're a bit more bullish about their vitality and resilience. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and it's true, really. which is great. You know, um, we've lived through pandemics before and I, I, I sort of imagine what it was like during the black plague when, you know, I think it was uh, far more virulent in terms of, you know, every, every, probably every third neighbor was lying on the front yard or something dead. Right. <laughs> so, and, yeah, so you sort of wonder, are we overdoing this or are we, or, you know, it's, this is, this is the right way to be respond, I guess. Is, um, I, I think the initial response was good. And in fact, I was personally surprised that it was a, as effective as it was, you know, the idea was to, was to flatten the curve, but we actually took it the other direction and mm. sort of did it. Um, uh, and now it's just this low level, slow burn kind of a thing. Um, but the problem is, is that this is hard. I wrote about young people, but I think my experience with the elderly is that they have, even though they have much higher risks, they are also suffering from this. And in some ways I'd say more so now. Um, I told my mom about the article. She's uh, 76. And uh, I said, 10 years. And she said, I don't have 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 10 years. Are you kidding me? I want to hug you now. Like, I don't like 10 years. And that was also kind of the idea of those pappers, uh, you know, something that could allow a more normal interaction without so much fear. I think the advantage of those is that it's kind of a personal protection, but also allows um, facial expression uh, and, and closeness. I actually had a patient who worked um, in uh, the ICU for COVID patients and was tested after a month, uh, you know, and that's her full-time work as a nurse there. Negative, right? So 
it's effective protection. Uh, and I think the masks that we wear are not nearly as effective. Uh, really? I think help in, in slowing the spread. Yeah. Not the N95s. The... Even the N95s are not as good as Papers. I mm. think that they filter the air 10 times better than nothing. And uh, our masks, what they do mostly is prevent that droplet spread. So, you know, from a cough or a sneeze or that kind of thing. Um, but they don't really filter the air very well at all. Mm. Uh, and the PAPRs are 25 times more effective. And if you get a really good seal tested, it's supposed to be a thousand times better. Wow. Uh, but uh, anyway, orders of magnitude improvement. So, mm. so I think, and we probably could improve those so that they were more user friendly for, you know, individuals and the elder. I think there'd be a lot of potential improvements on those, but just the idea of them. But there's also a social acceptance. Uh, I think people would feel pretty weird walking around with one of those helmets. Now we've gotten used to wearing the mask all the time, right? And it's nothing. Um, but at the beginning, it was socially very strange to be very strange. Yeah, that's what people who are hiding do. <laughs> well, I I remember going the first time I went to Beijing in 2003, I think, or, uh-huh. and you know, seeing people, some people wearing masks, you know, and I thought, well, it may make sense because the coal dust, you know, pollution is pretty bad. <laughs> so. But I remember seeing it, thinking this is very strange. We would never put a mask on in Vancouver or you know Seattle, right? And, and now it's just it's a normal thing. We all have fancy masks and fancy fabrics, <laughs> and <laughs> you know we can style it. And uh, so I'm curious about you know what you know Laura and I have been studying, you know the happiness, and you know one of the science has the biggest one of the biggest. Uh, variables of determinants of happiness is relationships and yeah uh, and so i think one of the downsides of of covid has been you know this muting of relationships but what are you um what are you seeing in terms of um i guess the hopeful question about are, are there new modalities of relationships kind of emerging i mean we're doing zoom calls but they have their limitations but how any observations on that question I don't know. I the plus side, the silver lining, is what you're looking for, huh? Well, I, I'm not saying I, I'm an eternal optimist, so I, I just see uh, I, I see the potential for. Well, put it this way: as an economist, I'm I think this is a wonderful opportunity to rethink our whole economic system. Oh, you know, trade, GDP, growth, the whole thing. It's just the whole thing was seemingly spinning out of control before COVID. Um, yeah. And almost like the, you know, br- bridge out, you know, bridge out ahead sign. <laughs> that, <you> know, <laughs> we're, we're like Thelma and Louise <laughs> driving towards this precipice, the debt precipice, and suddenly everything stops dead in its tracks. So it's a time to reflect and reset and think about why we're even here. Yes. Boy, you know, I, I do wish for a reset. And, uh, I, I can't say I'm 
feeling that optimistic that this is going to do that. Mm-hmm. I think that it, it doesn't seem like it's going to change our economic paradigm. It's changed our social paradigm a little bit, but it doesn't seem like mostly for the better. I think truth is the sense of community and getting together in larger groups is, you know, mostly distant, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think communities do foster a sense of well-being for us. I think it's a big part for most of us. We feel lonely when we're not part of a community. And, you know, I'm fortunate, you know, I have a partner, so I'm not all alone. Um, Yeah. My son, initially he was scared and was staying at his mom's house. uh, And, um, the last month and a half he's been here with me anyway, I think he decided that he would not be quite so afraid nice. of having him around, which is really nice as well. But that's, you know, still a pretty limited community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same as, you know, well, the, the Zoom things are interesting. We have our board meetings and have them forever online. Right, right. Why do I appreciate when we get together in person? There's something still magical about that. It's much better. Yep, absolutely. Which is the fascinating experience of, of just being present to each other in the same space. You can't. Uh, yeah, I don't know what. You can't it is. diminish the value of that. Right. And, uh, yeah, I work with I work with indigenous people, and it's yeah. you know it's pretty it's pretty self evident that when you're sitting in circle together and there's something going on there that you can't quantify. It's, um, Actually, uh, one thing that I did think of as a plus now that I come across it in my mind is I think that, and you reminded me about it, talking about indigenous people, um, the Happiness Alliance has something called the Planet Happiness, which is a project. Um, and it's uh, working with World Heritage Sites. Um, and I was thinking that now that education is more online, that we develop our programs that way, we can take education out to people rather than having to have them travel towards our universities, these large places. Um, and it's actually fascinating. Hugo's actually involved in, in enrolled at Juilliard right now, but they're, um, they're uh, having rolling arrivals, so they won't actually start all the kids in classes. Right. And they're still in New York, right? Yes. And, yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, and so Hugo, well, tomorrow morning he has to get up at 6 a.m. because they have a 9 a.m. class there. <laughs> <laughs> what's his, what, what instrument or what, what, what's his modality? French horn. French horn, um, nice. Wow. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, they're doing ear training in theory and the rest of the music uh, curriculum. And so he's doing all of this remotely. It's kind of interesting to see it and actually to be able to participate a little bit, talk to him, what did you have in class this morning? <laughs> so That's awesome. Kind of, it is kind of neat uh, to be able to do that and the fact that they have adapted. And so I think there's something there that seems like, could be a real opportunity for 
making education more available across the world. Mm, mm-hmm. Interesting. So what, one of the, and I'm going to, this is probably a leading conversation, but you know, one of the things I've been, uh, I think I've had chat conversations with Laura about this is, you know, when I, working with indigenous people, I've sort of come to realize there's something, you know, Maslow, apparently he came, he got the, the hierarchy of needs model from the Blackfoot from, he came to Southern Alberta where I live. And that, that's at least one of the stories, one of this, one of the elders I know talks to, tells me. And they, so, so I was like, isn't it interesting? He took the notion of a circle so that the human being being mental, physical, spiritually, emotional, and he turned it into a pyramid, which is what we tend to do. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why, but hierarchies, right? Yeah. Meritocracies, et cetera. And, but the indigenous person would say, no, no, the human person is a, is a wheel, is a circle like Taoists. And Mm -hmm. so when we look at the human being, then we can, in in essence, ask questions about self-assess your well-being, uh, self-assess your. So I, I've developed a, a medicine wheel protocol that uh-huh. becomes a subjective well-being, similar to the happiness survey work that Laura and others have worked on, or Bhutan. Yeah. And I, I find this interesting because we're so steeped in objective, of course, quantitative methods and diagnosis, and certainly as a physician, you know this quite well. And as an economist, I know this very well. But I find the, the, the modality of the subjective inquiry quite interesting because people are responding from how they feel as opposed to how they think. And so yeah. if you say, when you wake up in the morning, how much joy do you feel in your life? Well, first of all, hardly anyone's ever asked you the question on a national opinion poll. Uh, and you don't hear it on CNN or Fox. Yeah. But but it's relevant because, or how much hope do you feel? Um, and of course that can change day to day, but it's still a kind of a diagnosis of, of the human condition and spirit today. And I sort of wonder if, you know, I've had conversations with Dr. Zach Bush, who's a endocrinologist and um, about this. It's like, and he, he's, he's fascinated with the whole gut biome, you know, gut health and connection yes. with, with, uh, glyphosates and stuff and that ubiquitous you know uh, nature of glyphosates in our foods um so we we've been having some interesting chats about how does the subjective piece come into the accounting the equation um of uh measuring well-being and happiness i mean any reflections on as a physician, I know your family physician, and I always say my favorite family physician is my GP who doesn't put the blood pressure, you know, doesn't test my heart rate. He, he asked me, how, how's, your, how's your life? How's your relationship with your spouse and your kids? And Yes. Well, I think when I, I came from a medical family, but I, I think when I was studying, I thought that it would be this thing where you, you know, you studied hard enough and then you would know everything and you'd go in and... <laughs> be able to uh, figure out what was going on with the person and treat them. And, you know, in my experience, uh, particularly as a generalist, um, but almost, you know, whether I'm in the emergency room or in the clinic, uh, often we don't have certainty on what's going on there. And 
so that objective has its limitations, I would say. But in addition, I kind of learned along the way that actually it's the subjective that matters. I, I didn't used to trust my maybe emotion or intuition as much because it does change, as you said, you know, you're <laughs> or one time or another. But it is actually how we make our decisions in life is based on how we feel. We don't have a kid because it's a good financial decision. We do it because we want to. And I would say most of our decisions are made that way. And when our emotions are working well for us, we are able to make good integrated decisions. Uh, and when they're not, then I think we're thrown off. Um, so I, I personally think the subjective is critical. And in practice, you know, I kind of have a dual model going on in my head all the time when I see a patient. I have my medical model of, you know, what's this person's pathology, but I also have what's going on and what's this person's concern. And I learned this from an old dermatologist at UCLA who I noticed he would go in. This was when I was in medical school. He would go in and ask the patient, what do you think's going on? And I would think, why is he asking the patient this? You know, obviously I even know what's going on. <laughs> but he was getting at what their worries were. They'd say, oh, I think maybe I've had cancer. And he'd laugh. And, <laughs> but he got to what their concerns were, what their worries were. And that was a kind of magic. And I've used that throughout my career to find out what brought the patient in. Why are you here today? You know, that their, kind their of dis ease. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Their sense of what their worry is. And it often is very different from what, uh, you know, our objective medical model would be. And in fact, I've done a fair amount of leadership. I didn't talk with you about that, but I had the opportunity to institute a pay model for physicians. And one of the pieces was patient satisfaction. And I oh, had, wow. That's radical. <laughs> and uh, yeah, had their pay dependent on that because I think that that actually is a good marker for quality as well. Frankly, patients know when they're getting quality care. And by definition, in my opinion, if a patient doesn't feel like they're getting good care, then they're not getting good care. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> wow. Fascinating. I mean, in a way, you're you're a you're a life coach. In a way, I mean, you're hopefully helping people experience. Uh, I feel like I've always felt that way. I think that's mm. become more um, prominent in the younger phys physicians that I work with. They're they're more patient centered. Mm. It's nice to see. Wow. So just like I guess switching to. Uh, the the current what you're experiencing in the U.S. and uh, as a sort of intergenerational I, and and I reflect on the indigenous uh, trauma that that they've experienced and how that manifests in behavior. Um, what given what's going on in the U.S. Do you, what what gives you hope that there's a, there's a silver well I wouldn't say silver lining but. <laughs> There's a possibility of, of reconciliation, of, of redefining 
the, the Declaration of Independence in, with a new through a new lens, <laughs> even authentic happiness. I love Jefferson said pursuit. <laughs> The pursuit of happiness. Right, right. Apparently, apparently happiness wasn't in the original line. It was property or something. Right, and, right. Uh, so, you know, I've been musing about what, what if we were to write a new great charter like the Magna Carta or a new declaration that would maybe unify us in a way that says, um, yes, we, 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 we did have historical trauma. And, um, but how, how do we get back? You know, when you look at the U.S. as a patient and you, yes. you know, you say <laughs> red pill, blue pill. Actually, it's not about the pill. It's <laughs> maybe something else. You know, um, it, I saw years ago uh, Desmond Tutu's uh, Reconciliation Commission and the process there. And I was very touched by that. And I, I still feel like that concept of remember and forgive and i think that it seems to me like we have a, a problem right now of almost vengeance rather than justice and mercy as well and even though we're talking many times about um you know our multicultural uh sort of heritage, um, I, I think we haven't quite embraced that yet. And I, I think that while, in my view, America is on a downward track in terms of our uh, economic model, uh, our, our government uh, sort of being the handout <laughs> place for everybody, <laughs> by yourself a, a congressman. Um, I still think that our fundamental things, like you know, we had religious freedom and that concept, uh, embracing others' differences, and I, I think America has that, and it, it will, in the end, be a great benefit to us if we can find a way to reintegrate ourselves. Uh, but I do think we do need political reform. <laughs> Say the least. <laughs> but the lining is I think a base there that is quite grand, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Historically and currently as well. Yeah. I've heard it said that true genuine democracy as as envisioned by the Greeks has never really been uh, exercised in the in the truest um so we yeah, we, I don't think we have a perfect model. Um, Certainly not. And I think America, as the country that sort of started that again, um, had some flaws in our design. And, uh, and the balance of power has gotten uh, thrown off. Um, but I think if we reestablish that and think about what our original goals are, I think it would be possible to reestablish that balance of power once again. Yeah. So I I don't want to put you on the spot, but I don't know if you're part of uh, Laura's preparation of the handbook on, you know, how do we actually build these communities of well-being and happiness. 
But um, I'm just curious, I mean, I'm sure in your kitchen table conversations, you must wonder about what what we can do in Seattle or wherever we live uh, in terms of testing these these models or protocols given um, the heightened level of uh, fear and anxiety that that exists now and uh, what what gives you uh, what gives you hope that that these models or approaches this handbook can be an important game changer well I think that concept that you talked about that subjective sense of things I, I, I think that idea of grief and understanding our our inner sense of self really has continued to expand in many ways. Um, I would say that, you know, if you wanted to call it my emotional intelligence, it's probably (laughs) my father's and my father's was better than his father's. Um, Your EQ. My son's is better than mine already. Right, right, right. So I, I think there are there's progress, but sometimes it does take generations for things to come about uh, that, you know, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Tough love will get us. (laughs) Well, I just think that sometimes we just can't see a different perspective. Uh, You know, we're brought up in a certain way and it's harder for us to view things. So, that's that's a really great reflection, isn't it? Because it's hard for us to imagine a new narrative that we're so swimming in the the paradigms of our grandparents and parents, and yeah, wow. Well, this has been lovely. Any any um, closing reflections on uh, what gives you uh, what gives you hope for the for the year ahead? Shall we say? I mean, we're, and and you're entering, of course, a, another silly season in November. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that I don't know. <laughs> Get money out of our politics, <laughs> yes, yeah, better, and so I, I'm not very optimistic overall on that stuff until we get that fixed. Mm. But I do have a, a basic kind of faith in, in humanity. And we've been through things that were much rougher. Uh, you know, you look at, I was reading about Teddy Roosevelt and the corruption before he came in. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> and somehow we redefined ourselves with the square deal. And then we did it again with the new deal. New deal. <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah. I, we can reinvent ourselves. Yeah. So yeah, out of, uh, out of darkness, even chaos comes things like the new deal. I mean, the, and, and af, after the war, the emergence of all kinds of incredible, the Marshall plan, all kinds of things we did. Exactly. And uh, you know, the people forget about, well, I'm not American, but apparently there was an infrastructure bank, right. That led to the construction of all this incredible infrastructure, highways and dams and, Right. That put people to work when there was unemployment. And so right. we, we know we've done it before. There are creative ways of getting through any crisis. Um, and we'll have to dig deep and 
just dust off those history books and right and come together and come together and uh, so out of out of crisis you know as a chinese say there's you know that their symbol is uh, opportunity chaos yeah. or opportunity and yeah. so uh, but it's it's lovely to chat with you and and um, nice to talk with you thank too. you for sharing your um, your wisdom and your yeah. insights <laughs> thank you